Okay, let's uh, read the word. Pastor Jerry's here to read Matthew chapter 12. Yes, Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. I invite you to stand as we continue in our series, Hidden Treasure, the teachings of Jesus. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, And put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Thank you, Pastor Jerry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, help us to understand these words that you spoke 2,000 years ago. Uh, Teach us as you taught your first disciples. Guide us by your Spirit that we might understand your word and understand what it means for us today, and we'll know how to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can sit down. We continue in our series, Hidden Treasures, and today we're talking about requests leading to treasure. What kind of request would God expect from us? Uh, Sometimes, most days, I'll look at my wife and I'll say, oh, honey, you are so beautiful today. And then I'll follow up that compliment with something like, what do you think about this subject? And my wife, she knows me really well. So she knows whether that first beauty compliment is serious or not. She can read the tone of my voice. She also knows whether that request for conversation about some matter, some subject is sincere or not, because she knows me very well. Sometimes I just want to talk about something because I want to make my opinion known. I want to put forward my ideas, my thoughts, and try to insert those into her mind. Now, you're probably not like me. I'm a fallen human being, but every now and then I do that. Judy discerns, my wife discerns, the insincerity of my request. That's one example of an insincere request. And I'm sure you've had that experience where somebody tries to draw you into conversation, frames, you know, the the beginning of the conversation as a question, but they really don't want to know what you think. They're really not looking for new information or wisdom or more discernment. Sometimes people will come to us with, you know, the big questions in life. 
And their intent is not actually to find answers to those big questions. Their intent is rather to unsettle, to undermine, to dismantle things, to try to encourage you to enter into their cynicism. Insincere requests. What kind of request is God looking for? Let's go to our text today. In our text today, the uh, religious leaders come to Jesus with a request. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So what kind of request was that? The scribes, they were experts in the law. They were students of the law. Uh, they would, so students of the scriptures of the Old Testament. Today, we would... Uh, associate this group with students, professors of Bible, of theology. The scribes gave themselves to the study of the Scriptures. They wanted to show people how they should understand it and apply it to their lives. And many of the scribes were also Pharisees. And you'll remember that the Pharisees were this reformist movement within Judaism. They really wanted to encourage people to live a holy life. And they thought that they were the best example of what a holy life looked like. Obeying all kinds of commandments. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that Jesus is, or the people that come to Jesus with a request, they are not ignorant. They know their scriptures. If anybody in Israel had the responsibility of pointing people to Jesus, it was the scribes and Pharisees. They should have known who he was. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. What kind of request was that? Well, a sign, it would be this uh, most visible, irrefutable display of power that would convince, convince them and everyone else that Jesus truly was the Messiah. So let's remember the context. What had they already experienced? Well, let's remember that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in their region. Let's remember that in their region, a blind man had been healed. 5,000 were fed. 5,000 men and women and children were fed. Miraculously. A leper cleansed. The centurion's servant healed. Peter's mother-in-law healed. A paralytic healed. A girl raised from the dead. A woman with an issue of blood healed. A man with a withered hand made whole. And a blind and mute, demon-possessed man set free and much more. So interesting that they would come to Jesus and say, show us a sign. They were privileged. They had seen much. They had heard much. They had seen many signs performed validating who Jesus was and what his mission was. The last time that Jesus had performed a sign in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, what had happened? They had accused Jesus of doing that by the power of Satan. They had slandered the Holy Spirit. And in response to them, Jesus had strong words. He said, Pharisees, you're in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. Watch out. Instead of pointing people to me, you're actually pointing people away from me. They had become his most fierce opponents. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That was a very insincere request. Very insincere. They had already seen more than enough. Maybe they wanted to appear sincere to the crowds. I don't know. 
Sometimes I ask myself, and reading this text again, I ask myself, are sometimes my requests, like that of the scribes and Pharisees, insincere? I think it's a good heart check question, right? I've had the privilege of reading the Scriptures multiple times. I've seen much. Is there any hint of insincerity in my heart? God never rebukes people that make sincere requests. He doesn't rebuke those people who ask for a sign. Just look at the Old Testament. Heroes of the faith like Abraham and Moses and uh, Gideon and Joshua received signs in order to strengthen their faith. God does not despise those who make a sincere request for a sign. God will do the same for us. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. The request for a sign only becomes unjustified when we already have overwhelming evidence that we know what we should do and we can walk in faith. The request for a sign is only wrong when we, our hearts are actually not ready to receive. We're not open to learn. We actually don't want to believe. And this was the condition of the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees. So let's just guard our hearts against insincerity. <laughs> I think that's a good caution for myself, for you. Let's just guard our hearts against insincerity. We'll talk about that more as we go along. In the case of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus knows that they're insincere. He perceives their malicious intentions. He knows they're only looking for an opportunity to accuse him again. So this is what he says. Verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The scribes and the Pharisees, they ask for this sign in order to have faith in him. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a new sign. I'll only point to an old sign, the sign of Jonah. So who was Jonah? <laughs> what is the sign of Jonah? Well, let's just review the story. In the middle of the 8th century, Jonah, 8th century B.C., Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel. God sent Jonah to proclaim his message to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh, there it is. Uh, Modern-day northern Iraq. It would be near the city of Mosul. Maybe you've heard the name of that city. So Nineveh. Jonah is to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's message to the people of that city. Why? Because God's compassionate. He's merciful. Does John want that to happen? Well, not so much. What does he do? Instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes west to Tarshish, goes down to a ship, to the coast, to the city of Joppa, gets on a ship, and heads for Tarshish. That is the opposite direction. It's like receiving an invitation to go to Victoria, and you end up going to St. John, Newfoundland. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would Jonah go in exactly the opposite direction? Because he knew that God was gracious, that God was merciful, that he was slow to anger, full of compassion for all people, and he didn't want Nineveh to repent. He wanted God to destroy the city of Nineveh. 
The last thing that he wanted was for Nineveh to repent. In a very small way, I can identify with Jonah. Uh, Shortly after becoming a follower of Jesus, I served as a camp counselor in uh, a small camp just outside of San Antonio. One week, I had a cabin full of grade six boys. And uh, one of the campers, one of the grade six boys, just didn't like me. Can you imagine that? Why? Didn't like me. So what did he do? He called his mother. He said, Mom, I have the most awful camp counselor. And his mother, what did she do? She called the camp director to share her grievances. So then the camp director came to talk to me. Just put it mildly, I was not happy with little camper Joey. At the end of the week, little Joey's sitting in a cabin, sitting on his bed, and he's, he's whimpering, he's crying. So I go over to him and I say, Joey, what's wrong? And he talks about some different things. And in the middle of our conversation, all of a sudden he says, I think I need to surrender my heart to Jesus. And I'm like, you've made my life pretty miserable this week, Joey. I'm not sure I want to spend eternity with you. (laughs) I'm a fallen human being. So thankfully, I got beyond myself, you know, beyond my emotions, and I, I led little Joey in a prayer. So now Joey's really excited, and he calls his mother, and his mother you know, comes, you know, on the last day of the camp and says, I'm just the most wonderful camp counselor. So how did I go from being the worst to the best in one week? And which am I? Well, I'm the best camp counselor. No, somewhere in the middle. I don't know whatever happened to little Joey. I sometimes wonder. But he was the first person that I had the privilege of leading to Jesus. Now, I was a reluctant witness. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's full of compassion toward all people. My grace toward joy was not so abounding. (laughs) Jonah was a much more reluctant witness. He really did not want the, the people of Nineveh to come to a place where they would believe in God and repent. He wanted to see God destroy that city. After all, Israel's number one enemy. So Jonah is heading to Tarshish by ship. That's where we left him. And God causes a great storm. A great storm forms over the sea. And it looks like the ship is going to be torn apart. So all of the sailors, they worship different gods and they're crying out to their gods and they're wondering what is causing this storm. They do this to no avail, and so they cast lots. It was an ancient practice to try to discern what was happening in the divine realm, the spiritual realm. And the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked Jonah, Jonah, what did you do? And Jonah explains that he's running from God, and they ask him, okay, you're running from God, what should we do? Well, just pick me up and throw me into the sea. Well, they don't want to do that. So they start rowing harder and harder and harder, but they're unable to get to land. So relenting, they pick Jonah up and throw him into the sea. And as, as soon as they do that, the sea grows calm. 
Jonah is now under the sea, and the Lord causes a great fish to swallow him. From the belly of the fish, Jonah cries out to God. He repents, and he calls out to God for salvation. And God, in his mercy, in his compassion, causes causes the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. That was the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Just notice this. God answers the sincere request of Jonah. And when God answers sincere requests, he does it for his saving purposes. God answers our sincere requests for his saving purposes and his glory. When we make a sincere request, God is present to answer. Now, God's answer is not always yes. And that's actually a really good thing. Because sometimes we ask in error. We don't have the wisdom that God has. We do not see all things. We're limited in our understanding of life. So sometimes God answers yes. Sometimes he answers yes in my timing. And sometimes he says no. And he does that in his mercy and compassion. And when God answers our requests, it's not just about our personal story. There's actually a bigger story that God is writing. God has in mind not only our good, but the blessing of other people. So when God answers Jonah's request, it is for the salvation of Nineveh as well. Maybe you're struggling with an illness and you're praying for healing. If you receive healing from the Lord, it's not just for your own healing. It's also unto something. It's for God's saving purposes. So God had in mind not just, you know, the extension of Jonah's life on earth when he was spit from the whale, but also the salvation of the city of Nineveh. As he dried on the beach, the word of the Lord came to him again a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach the message that I've called you to preach, that message of repentance. As he walks through, this time Jonah goes, as he walks through the city, he proclaims that simple message, and the people respond. (laughs) A citywide fast is called for every person, every animal. This is what the king says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So all of them, from the poorest to the king, sit in sat with their sackcloth on and sit in ashes. They're repenting. And how does God respond? Well, he relents from the disaster that he's going to bring upon them because he's compassionate, because he's merciful. The main theme of the book of Jonah is that God is compassionate toward all people. That's the main theme of the book. That compassion, it includes even pagan sailors. It includes the Assyrians. It includes all people. It includes us. It includes the city of Burnaby. It includes Metro Vancouver, Canada, every people group on earth. God is compassionate. And it's interesting to note that the theologians of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, 
they believed that one of the reasons for the repentance of the people of Nineveh was that Jonah shared his story with them. Jonah shared his story of deliverance with the people of Nineveh, and that attested to his message. So Jesus understands very well what the scribes and Pharisees are thinking about Jonah. He understands very well why he should point them to Jonah. And the sign of Jonah in his life will be an even greater death-to-life miracle than that which Jonah experienced. Jesus says his generation will only receive the sign. He refers to it as an adulterous generation. Why does he say that? In the Old Testament, if you go to the Old Testament, the people of Israel are accused of spiritual adultery when they go after other gods. When they, instead of worshiping Yahweh, the true God, they go after other gods and worship them. They're accused of adultery, of unfaithfulness. And so when Jesus looks at his generation, he says, you guys are actually being unfaithful to God. You speak in the name of God. You think you understand the scriptures but you're actually being unfaithful to him. You're disobeying. You're living for yourselves and the religion that you have created. They're not seeing God and life the way that God would have them see it. And they certainly are not willing to receive God's messenger, the Messiah, Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, they have received tremendous privilege They have seen so much. They have heard so much. But at the final judgment, Jesus says, the one standing up as witnesses against them and pointing the finger will be the people of Nineveh who have received so much less. Look at verse 41, chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah's rescue from the belly of the fish, it provides an analogy for the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at this table here. Jonah was confined to the belly of a great fish. Jesus was confined in the earth. He was buried. Jonah was confined for three days and three nights. Jesus was confined for three days and three nights. Jonah was delivered by divine intervention. So was Jesus. The miracle of Jonah's deliverance, it attested to Jonah's message. Jesus' resurrection, it attests to Jesus' gospel. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, it becomes the primary evidence for the message of Jesus. Jonah's audience repented. Jesus' audience has not repented. In the life of Jonah, there was a larger salvation purpose, the the repentance and the salvation of the people of Nineveh. And of course, for Jesus, through his death and resurrection, there is a much larger salvation purpose. The purpose is that all people around the world will hear the good news of the gospel and have the opportunity to receive Jesus as their Savior. There's a larger salvation purpose. So Jonah's near-death experience and his restoration to life, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the point that Jesus is making. And that is the sign that his generation will receive. If that were not enough, Jesus continues and he talks about Solomon. Let's look at verse 42. Jesus has a point to make. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, 
something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south was the queen of Sheba, most likely queen of the Sabaeans. Let's look at the map. And so modern-day Yemen, that's where Sheba was. And she makes the long trek. The queen of Sheba makes the long trek up to Israel. Why? This queen of Sheba story, it's the classic uh, story from the Old Testament where a non-Israelite, a non-Jew is showing interest in Israel, its wisdom, and its God. She made the long trek with with the express purpose of hearing Solomon's Wisdom. This is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. I love that. She asked Solomon all of her hard questions. The scriptures also say in 1 Kings chapter 10 that she sh- shared with Solomon all that was on her mind. So you can imagine this conversation right? As they sipped their lattes, (laughs) King Solomon and Queen of Sheba had an amazing conversation. And I'm sure her first sincere question was this, Solomon, these lattes are amazing. I know you used Arabica coffee beans, but how did you roast them? Don't take that seriously, please. It's not in the scriptures, and that was probably not her question. More seriously, the scriptures say that after observing Solomon's palace, the food on his table, the administration of his royal court, and the temple sacrifices, she was breathless. Solomon's wisdom was far beyond anything that she could imagine. This is what the scriptures say about Solomon's wisdom and those that went to him. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon had extraordinary wisdom. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus is wisdom itself. The people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, they believe with relatively little evidence. These non-Jews were able to perceive what the people of Jesus' generation in Israel are unable to perceive because of their hardness of heart. And so Jesus says, the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba will stand up at the final judgment and accuse you. Those who have received much less will accuse those who have received much, much. The Pharisees, they believed themselves to be wise. And that was one of the reasons they were unable to receive from Jesus, because they believed, sincerely believed, They were the bearers of wisdom. Jesus wants them to understand. (laughs) He wants to alert them. And so in mercy, in compassion, he shares a story with them, a parable. This is in verse 43, chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... 
It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus talks about a demon that is expelled from its human dwelling. It heads off to the desert looking for a place or a person to inhabit. When it finds none, it returns to the person from which it came. Returns. It refers to that person as my house. So it has possession in view. It wants to repossess the person. Returning home to this person, it finds the person unoccupied, empty, tidied up, swept clean. I have this image in my mind um, that helps me think about this text. Recently, my, um, my wife and I, we invited my three brothers and their wives and my father to our home. We wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving. We wanted to celebrate my father's 95th birthday. So my wife decided that we should clean up our place, redecorate some things, tidy it up. So she painted a wall, and we hung some family pictures there. I painted a rusted, old rusty bicycle that holds plants. It's now black, beautiful. She started selling things on marketplace, Facebook Marketplace. She sold my desk. She sold my bookshelf. So I come home and it's gone. And she convinces me that it's a good thing, that it's gone. I make another desk out of an old wooden door. Every day I'm coming home and I'm saying, okay, what's gone now? I go into my closet. What has she sold? Scary. Judy washed the windows of our condo. I power washed the deck. Anyways, the home was tidied up. It was clean, redecorated, but lifeless. The condo had to be filled with people in order to have life. Just having an empty, tidy, you know, clean heart that's empty is not enough. In the case of Jesus' parable, a demon has been expelled from many people in, or demons have been expelled, I should say, from many people in in Galilee. But if these people that have been set free do not follow Jesus in discipleship and do not invite the Holy Spirit to enter their lives, they will be in a dangerous place. They'll be in a dangerous place. And what is true for these individual people is worthy of wider reflection. Jesus is speaking to his generation, and he says, if you guys persist in your disobedience, your hardness of heart, your cynicism, if you persist in this, you are putting yourselves in a dangerous place. You are not in a spiritually neutral place. If you're not for me, you're against me. 
And the demonic that has left you will come back with seven other demons. And when the scripture talks about seven demons, it's talking about totality of possession. In other words, your condition after rejecting me will be worse than your original condition before you ever heard my words or saw the signs that I have performed. Be careful. That's what he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees. He's trying to alert them to the danger that they're placing themselves in. They're vulnerable. This is what David Turner writes about this text. This is uh, from a commentary on Matthew. Although a great many Jews have witnessed and experienced Jesus' healings and exorcisms, comparatively few have genuinely understood Jesus' message and repented. The nation, like a recently cleaned house, has had its demons removed, yet it has done nothing to ensure itself against their more rigorous reentrenchment. In relation to Jesus, there is no room for neutrality. Indifference, after you have heard the words of Jesus, after you have seen him at work, if you stay in that indifferent place, if you stay in that hardened place, you are in a much more dangerous place. And that was what was happening with the scribes and Pharisees. So let's just be aware again of insincerity. Insincerity toward Jesus is extremely dangerous. And that's why Jesus tells the parable. An empty house is a dangerous existence. It's not spiritually neutral, uh, a spiritually neutral reality. The world of insincerity, the world of cynicism, the world of disobedience, the world of unbelief is dangerous territory. You open yourself up to oppression and depression and despair. Tom White, um, the director of Voice for the Martyrs, he was in the central highlands of Vietnam, and some of the North Americans that were with him and observed the suffering of the Vietnamese Christians talked about the suffering of the Vietnamese Christians. And one of them said this, one of the Vietnamese Christians, suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Disobedience is the worst thing. And sometimes in North American society, we're in such a therapeutic world that we think that the worst thing that could ever happen to us is that we would suffer in some way. But this Vietnamese Christian says very clearly and very perceptively, suffering ain't the worst thing. Disobedience is the worst thing. Being in that place of hardness of heart, of unfaithfulness to God, of the place of cynicism is the worst place that a person can be. Eventually, if you persist in your hardness of heart, what happens is that you no longer see the things of the kingdom. Things become hidden. In our time, a really popular word, it's popular in the media, it's also popular in academia, so if you're going to school, you would have heard this word, deconstruction. Deconstruction. People are deconstructing our history, deconstructing the Bible, deconstructing theology, deconstructing literature, deconstructing philosophy, dismantling, taking everything apart. And there's nothing wrong, as we said earlier, there's nothing wrong with asking hard questions. If we're actually looking to understand, and if things need to be seen in a new way, there's nothing wrong with that. 
But if we persist in the world of deconstruction <laughs> and there's no intent to actually build on solid foundations that have been given, if we're always just dismantling, we're in a dangerous place. Now, that may not be your reality, but you probably know someone that lives in this world always taking things apart, always dismantling, always deconstructing, never constructing. Deconstruction, that's a dangerous place to be. What's the good news for all of us? Well, first of all, it's really good news that God is compassionate, that He's merciful, that He's gracious, that He's slow to anger, that He's patient. Because all of us, at some point in our lives, will find ourselves in a place of insincerity. And God is gracious toward us, and He draws us back by His Spirit. Praise God for that. Another truth that we hang on to, and it is so true and so beautiful, Jesus has come to us. God has revealed Himself. And so if you read through chapter 12 of Matthew, you'll see that Jesus is presented as being greater than the temple, greater than the prophet Jonah, and greater than King Solomon. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. He's greater than the king temple. Let's talk about that for a minute. Jesus is the only mediator between us and God. Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. He gave his life, paid the price that we could not pay. He made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Opened the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and he continues to intercede for us. So if we want peace with God, if we truly want peace with God, then Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who shows us the way to relationship with the Father. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus came speaking the word of God when he was here on earth. He was God's word to us. He revealed God to us. If you want to know God, look at the life of Jesus. It's the clearest picture that has ever been given of who God is. So Jesus not only speaks forth the Word of God, He is the Word of God, and He continues to speak the Word of God to His people. John chapter 10, Jesus says that His sheep hear His voice. Do we want to know God's Word? Well, then read the words of Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus. The Word of Jesus will change your life. Jesus is greater than King Solomon. He's the ultimate king. The end of Matthew tells us that Jesus is reigning over all things, that he is sovereign, that he has all authority over in heaven and on earth. The whole story is in his hands. So if you feel perplexed and confused by things happening in our day, surrender your heart to Jesus, the one who no really knows what is happening and has his hand on the story. We can live each day full of the peace of God because of who Jesus is. He is the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. That's really good news. As we embrace his word to us, 
as we accept his work on our behalf, as we surrender to his kingship, we find life. Let's go to Jesus with our sincere request because he's the only one who can truly answer our questions. Take your sincere request to the only one who can answer, Jesus. That's really good news. God hasn't left us alone. I'm so thankful. A number of times during the message today, I'm a fallen human being. That is very true. Apart from Jesus, I'm desperately wicked. That's the human heart. That's the human condition. That's who we are. But God in his mercy, in his compassion, has reached out to us. In love, he sent Jesus. Jesus revealed the Father to us. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we have the opportunity to not only receive God's word to us, but to find true life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we surrender to Jesus, we receive the good treasure that God has for us. Jesus in us by the Spirit. And when the Spirit abides in us, that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for sending your Son, Jesus. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you have come, that you have revealed the Father to us, that you have opened the way for us to know the Father. It was through your death and resurrection. We thank you. And in this moment, again, we surrender our hearts to you. Jesus, be our Lord, our King. And for those here who may not know you, Jesus, I pray that they would open their hearts to you and receive you as their Savior and Lord. You have life for us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us your wisdom, your knowledge, your discernment. As your word said, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we invite you to abide in us. We don't want to be an empty house. We want to be filled with your spirit. We want to live for your glory. And not just for our own benefit, but so that others might come to know you. Make us aware, Lord, of your larger purposes. May we live into them with joy and with hope. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work among us. We entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's some questions for your reflection.